Good morning, church. Um, Brian, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really excited to be here this morning to bring you guys the message. Um, I never really noticed how long that bumper was when I was sitting out there until just now. Um, you kind of have to just wait. I should have I sat down there for about 15 more minutes before I got up here. Um, thanks for coming in this morning. Um, it's certainly another uh, chilly day here um, in St. John's County. My allergies have been driving me crazy because it keeps going up and down, up and down, but I guess that's, that's this time of year. So um, thanks for coming in. Um, if you're a guest here this morning with us, um, I'd love to meet you on the way out or um, Gene, one of our other pastors is here too. Just please stop us and introduce yourselves. We'd love to get to have a chance to talk to you. Um, and for those that are um, joining us on YouTube today, uh, welcome as well. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm a technology guy. I'm in software development. And so I'm actually pretty, pretty thrilled that we have this kind of technology. My mom and my, my in-laws are able to, to watch today. And um, that's something they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So I think it's pretty cool that we get to do this. But very thankful that we're all here um, together this morning. Um, worship was wonderful. I, that, last, that last song... Every time that we sing that, it it gets me that that chorus um, about the the grave being open and the the stone being rolled away is just such a powerful message. And um, the good news is is that Jesus is our Savior and died for our sins. So we've been in a series called Life on Mission the last several weeks, and uh, we're going to continue in that this morning. But before we get started, um, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, this opportunity to come and worship you. There's a lot of people that are not able to be here today because they're struggling with sickness or disease, and we know that through you, Jesus, you're able to heal us. And Lord, I, I'm so thankful for that. I hope that as I um, deliver this message today that you have me speak the words that you want me to speak and have me forget the words that you don't want me to speak. And I pray that we're convicted by your love and grace and mercy for us. And we're just so thankful, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Like I said, we've been in a series called Life on Mission, and what this has been all about is that God is sending us out into the world to make him known. Um, it's really that simple. That's our job. Um, Jonathan's talked about it the last several weeks, that we're to go out and proclaim God and his glory. We're to, we're to uh, be witnesses to his grace, love, and mercy. And we are um, given the, the grace of the Holy Spirit to be able to turn away from the sins of this world and be able to point our worship towards our Lord. But we must be careful to guard our hearts um, against being puffed up and conceited. And it can be really easy to fall into a trap where we start to think that we're better than non-Christians or even other Christians. To this, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there's several examples in Scripture where Jesus parallels, draws parallels between the sick and the sinners. Today we're going to see how he's not only come for us, but that he calls us to go to the sin sect, just as Jesus did, so that we can share the gospel and make him known. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be today in uh, Luke chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's uh, plenty of Bibles um, scattered on these tables around the, uh, the room here. Um, feel free to take one. It could be uh, yours, a uh, gift, gift to you today. Um, 
we will also have the verses up on the screen, and we're going to be um, in the ESV today. So we're going to be camping out in verses 27 through 32 in chapter 5 of Luke. And this is where he records this wonderful story of a man named Levi. So let me start by reading through those scriptures really quick. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Jesus made him a great feast in his, or sorry, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So at this point in Jesus' life, he's begun his ministry. Um, he is um, going from village to village near the, uh, the, the uh, area called Capernaum and near the Sea of Galilee. And Luke has provided several examples in chapter 4 and 5 of Jesus demonstrating his authority over sickness and disease and nature and the supernatural, providing his promised, uh, that he's the promised Messiah. Jesus has also recently called his first disciples, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. And so wherever he goes, he's started to have, uh, you know, his ministry is starting to take off. His crowds are, are forming around him. And he basically is at a point where he's waking up every morning. He's going to, from town to town and preaching to people and sharing the good news. <clears throat> and this is where we come across the story of Levi. So in verse 27, it says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. Now, the fact that Levi is a tax collector tells us a couple of things about him. First, he had to be a person of above average intellect. Um, as I was researching this passage, I came across a commentary about tax collectors um, during the time of Jesus. And it said, quote, a tax collector by virtue of his office need, needed to be particularly fluent in Greek. He would also need to be literate and used to keeping records. So Levi's a Jew, and as a Jew who was also fluent in Greek, he likely spoke three languages, um, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which is the language of the day. He also had to be extremely proficient in record keeping. He had to keep detailed accounting records of, of the money that he was taxing people so that he could report that to his authorities. So by any measure, he must have been a pretty intelligent guy, and he was probably educated as well. Second, the next thing that we find out about Levi being a tax collector is that he was deliberately a part of, an, he was embroiled in a, in, a, in, a, in a profession which was, you know, completely about corruption and extortion. Um, so during that time, um, Israel was under the room of, rule of the Roman Empire, and the Romans would hire people to go out and collect taxes on their behalf. Now, there was a couple of different types of tax collectors during this time. Um, the first kind was kind of a general, uh, general tax collector, and they, they are called the, the Gabi, and I'm sorry, I probably butchered that, but, um, but that's not my first language. Um, <laughs> but these folks, think of them as the, the, the people that would come and collect your, your property taxes, your income taxes, and your, your poll taxes. Poll taxes were basically just a, um, a tax for being alive within the Roman Empire. You, you just paid that as a, as a surcharge for being in their, in their area. But 
all of this was assessed by um, uh, you know, an official record. So just like you would get your tax documents today, you know how much you have to pay. There wasn't a lot of room for those people to be um, taking any over the top because it was pretty much documented. Now, the MOCAS, on the other hand, collected taxes on imports and exports. And these guys were as, as uh, corrupt as they came. The Romans awarded contracts to the highest bidders for these type of people. So you would have a bunch of people that were saying, you know, I want to I wanna have this way to get rich, and I'm going to go and put my lot in, and they would pick whoever's going to give them the highest amount of taxes. Now, as the Romans awarded this contract to the highest bidder, they were allowed to go out and set up tax booths wherever the heck they wanted. They could, they could tax you on whatever they wanted. There was really no bounds to what they could do. And so these mocax collected taxes from their local Jewish brethren, and then they paid the Romans what they had promised by contract, and they got to keep whatever was on top of that. So you could imagine that there was a lot of, um, a lot of cheating and stealing and uh, just you know, an overall you know, kind of way of living that you want to just try to take as much from your neighbor as possible. Um, think of this kind of like a surcharge. Like if you ever want to go to a concert or a football game or something like that, and you go to Ticketmaster, and they charge you like a $10 surcharge per ticket, and you don't have any idea if that's actually for anything at all other than just an inflation on your ticket or not. Maybe it's for somebody doing their job, but I mean, it's all electronic these days, so I'm not really sure exactly what that's all about. But it's the same sort of thing. You would go, and you might be on a road walking uh, you know, from place to place, and there would be a tax booth set up, and they would ask you for, you know, they would tax your, your travel, they would tax your, your donkey, your cart, whatever's in your cart, whatever they wanted that day. So... Needless to say, these people were very despised by the other Jews. I mean, I don't think that any of us, you know, would like to see the IRS coming to our house or anything like that. But this is a different kind of a level. This is, this is people who were actively stealing from their own people. And, and that's why they were so hated, because the, their, their Jewish countrymen looked at them and said, look, you are, you are intentionally working for the oppressed government to steal from us. And so think of these people, they were thought of as at the same despicable level as murderers and prostitutes and all kinds of untoward people. So this guy, Levi, was one of these mokes. And we find out later in Luke that um, another tax collector that Jesus called named Zacchaeus, um, he, was, he was one of the um, tax collector bosses. So this, Levi would have worked for somebody like Zacchaeus. And that's an even better thing. You don't even have to go out and do anything. You just collect taxes off the other guy. Um, but at any rate, these people are embroiled in corruption. And so Jesus is walking through this town, and he's preaching, and people are following him. And, you know, they could imagine, okay, Jesus is preaching in my town today. We're going to see him. And that's where we, we, uh, we see Levi in Luke chapter uh, 5. Verse 57, he says, I saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Follow me. So talk about an open-ended offer. Um, it, if you've ever interviewed for a job, um, you know, you go through the process, and once you've convinced them that you're of any worth to them, they typically go through this process of saying, you know, okay, um, these are all the things that you're going to get from us. These are your benefits. This is your, your, uh, your uh, salary. This is, you know, maybe why this company is going to be great because of you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? 
Jesus doesn't offer that at all to Levi. He just says, follow me. And he's doing this in an area where Levi is actively stealing from the people that have come to hear him preach. He's literally breaking commandments of the law, right? So, you know, at a minimum, he is, he's stealing, he's coveting what his neighbor has, he's not loving what his, uh, not not loving his neighbor as as he loves himself. He's basically breaking the whole right side of the ledger. Um, And Jesus doesn't care. He comes over to him and says, follow me. Just earlier in this chapter, we can read the story of how um, Jesus instructs Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John uh, to drop their nets into the Sea of Galilee in a place they hadn't been able to catch fish all day. And if anybody has, has been out on a fishing excursion with me, um, if Jesus had asked me to drop my net, I would have been like, okay, yeah, absolutely, because I don't catch fish. Um, <laughs> and so, but these guys, these guys were professional fishermen, right? They, they, would have had, um, they would have had a sense of pride about what their abilities were in that area to be able to catch fish. And so when Jesus says this to them, you can imagine that they were probably a bit arrogant and, you know, had a, had a bit of, you know, maybe they thought about it a little bit mockingly or begrudgingly and said, okay, sure, whatever, we'll drop our nets. And they ended up pulling up so many fish after Jesus asked them to do that that their, their boat started to sink. Could you imagine if you pulled up so much fish that your boat started to sink? And so this is where, um, where in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, It says, referring to Peter seeing this catch and recognizing that Jesus is God. Um, It says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I tell this part of the story because Jesus isn't looking for people who have it all together. He's, He's looking for people that are broken, people who are sinners. And that's the reality is that Jesus has called sinners to become disciples, not people that are, um, you know, that have, have been doing everything right. He calls sinners to become, become disciples. He does the same with Levi. Um, so outwardly, you might have thought of Peter as somebody that, you know, maybe, maybe he's a guy that you would like to hang out with. You know, he's got a blue-collar job. He's got... Um, the ability to, you know, to talk to other people. You know, Jesus is hanging out with him. But when he, encounter, when he encounters God in the flesh, he's got nowhere to hide. He sees his own sin for what it is, and he confesses. Levi is obviously a sinner. Himself and anybody who looked at him would have recognized him as a sinner. Imagine how the crowds would have acted um, having seen Jesus approach Levi at his tax booth and asking him to follow me, they would have been repulsed. Imagine if you were somebody who had a uh, propensity to care for the poor, and there's this man that is actively stealing from people. Jesus is coming into town, and in this area, Levi might have been following Jesus around to collect taxes from the people that are coming to hear him preach. And you're, you're a Jew at that time, thinking about, the coming of the Messiah, as it's been written. And you believe that this man, Jesus, is him, and you've gathered to learn from him, and then you're seeing him asking this corrupt, thieving, unethical man to become his follower. You'd have been been distraught, and especially if you had paid this man on your way in, right? 
Um, but this is such a beautiful picture of God's grace. And what it tells us is that you are not too sinful for Jesus, ever. If Jesus can call somebody as seemingly undeserving as Levi, someone who was on the same morally bankrupt level as murderers and, and prostitutes, he can call you. Your sins don't make you gross in the eyes of Jesus in a way that he would no longer want to call after you, ever. So imagine if your, your kids are out on a rainy day. Maybe your kids play football, or maybe you live on a farm, and you've got, um, you've got a whole bunch of open space, and it's rainy and muddy. Kids love to play in the mud, right? Um, as parents, we would never look at our kids coming in covered head to toe in mud and say, ah, well, ah, you know what? I don't love you anymore. You are gross and dirty. No. We wouldn't say that. We'd say, let me help you clean you up. And that's exactly what our Heavenly Father does for us through Jesus Christ. So let's look at Levi's response to Jesus in verse 28. He says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Jonathan preached about this a couple of weeks ago, how following Jesus comes at a cost. For Levi, he had to have known that he was about to make an irreversible decision. See, for Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen. If this whole thing didn't work out, they could just go back to their normal jobs, and they'd probably be just fine. But Levi would never have gotten his job back from the government. There would have been a long line of people lined up waiting to take his place because it, it, it made them live a comfortable life. No, more, no matter how deplorable it was, it was a comfortable life for those people. His decision completely impacted his livelihood, and he made it instantaneously. It says that he, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's an immediate thing. He didn't, he didn't stop to think about that. And Jesus calls us to leave our sinful life behind and pursue a life of holiness in him. We're not meant to be, we're not saying that you have to quit your job or move to a different country in order to be on mission. That might, that might be what you do. Um, you know, I know that uh, Spencer Bolter, for example, did that with his family and moved to Costa Rica and is, you know, living on mission there. But what he's asking you to do is leave your old way behind. Leave the way that you're doing your job behind. Leave the way that you're doing it for selfish and prideful reasons. In Levi's case, he had been living a life of guilt and shame and hopelessness. He went from being known as a tax collector to a follower of Jesus. People would have certainly remembered him as a tax collector, but that would no longer define him. Imagine the peace and joy that he felt must have felt like the heaviest of weights had just come off, come off his shoulders. I mean, yes, he was comfortable. Yes, he was, he was able to, you know, make all the money that he wanted. But at the end of the day, he was lonely. He didn't, there would be nobody that wanted to, to be around this guy until he met Jesus. So after Levi decides to get up and leave his tax booth, um, to follow Jesus, one of the first things that he does is he throws a big party for Jesus. Like I just said, he, he doesn't 
necessarily have a bunch of friends. So let's see what happens in, in verse 29. He says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Levi was super excited about his newfound hope. And he wanted to introduce Jesus to whomever he could. But the problem was is that the only people that he knew were other tax collectors. And then it goes and says, and others. I think that that's an interesting sort of a loaded uh, word that's used there where you know we don't really know who the other people were, but we could imagine that they're probably of that same deplorable kind of... Um, uh, of circle, social circles that, that Levi was running in because nobody would have wanted to have been with him. Um, these would have been the only folks that he knew. But I, I get this picture when they talk about having this, these great feasts. And there's, there's several uh, occasions within the New Testament where they talk about feasts. And I think about, you know, when you go to Thanksgiving dinner and you've got your, your family and your friends all around you and, you know, you have this, this big meal. You're, hopefully you're having a good time. I don't know, maybe that's a, a trigger for some people. Thanksgiving with family might be a... <laughs> a bad thing, but in my house, it's a really, really fun occasion. And uh, but when you're done, you're all full and and kind of fat and happy, and you're you're all sitting around and whatever you do, whether it's football or dog shows or just playing cards or something, you know, you're sitting around being together, fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company. When it says that they were reclining together at table, that's kind of what I imagine. Like they've had this great feast on Jesus's behalf, and they're they're just reclining um, in His presence. But in any culture, sharing a meal with someone is, I mean, it carries a particular relational significance to it, doesn't it? Um, in Jesus' times, meals were very communal. There was no utensils or plates or anything like that like we have today. Um, you know, you don't have a fork, a knife, a spoon, a plate, a napkin, a tablecloth, all that stuff. It was literally, you might have a piece of bread was your, was your spoon, and you would have a, a common bowl that got passed around with whatever, whatever kind of soup or porridge or whatever you were eating, um, you know, fruit and, and berries and stuff like that. And so, you know, when people got together to, to have a meal together, it was a very intimate experience. You wouldn't be inspired to share a meal with somebody who, you, unless you wanted to form a relationship with them. You just, you just wouldn't. That's exactly what Jesus did. But not everyone was excited about um, what Jesus was doing with these sinners. Um, if you look at, at the next verse in chapter 30, you see what the religious rulers at the time had to say about it. It said, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees were members of a religious group at the time that distinguished themselves based off of their strict observance of the traditional and written law, Jewish law, and they would never allow themselves to socialize with sinners on purpose. Um, in fact, they basically would do as many of their dealings as possible with other Pharisees so that they could try to put themselves in a nice little bubble um, where they didn't have to interact. And they also had this mindset of like guilt by association. So if, you know, one of your Pharisee friends happened to walk by uh, a sinner and they happened to strike up a conversation with them, you would assume that they had you know, fallen to the dark side and that they were, no longer, uh, they were no longer clean because they were associating with other sinners. So talking with or touching a sinner would have been horrible, but sharing a meal, given its intimacy, would have been about the worst thing that they could imagine someone could do. 
And they see this feast happening with Jesus and his disciples among these sinners. And they, they question Jesus, why, why would you debase yourself with these people? Why would you put yourself in this environment? And he, they don't even ask Jesus. They ask the disciples. I mean, I can imagine, you know, they, they, them going up to, to Peter and being like, hey, what's with your boss? You know, like, uh, what in the world is he doing? You know, and they, they, don't have, they don't have a quick answer for him. It's probably a, a very awkward sort of a situation for them to be in, too, because remember, just recently, before they were called to Jesus, they also despised these tax collectors. They're no different than the rest of, of the people in that area. And so outside of the context of Jesus being there, they wouldn't have wanted to be with these people either. Well, let me ask you a tough question. Do you catch yourself sometimes judging others? I know, I know I do. Sometimes I don't even realize it until after I've done it. I think that we can be just as legalistic and judgmental in today's culture as the Pharisees were in Jesus' time. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to have that self-righteousness. Um, I found this, uh, this quiz online that I thought was kind of funny. So let's, uh, we're going to take it really quick. It's called, You Might Be a Pharisee If... Um, and uh, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. We'll, you know, just uh, keep your answers in your head. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but let me ask you a few questions. So do you avoid spending time with foul-mouthed coworkers because you're afraid that they'll make you look bad? If you do, you might be a Pharisee. Do you put yourself in the category of good while putting others in the category of bad? If you do, you might be a Pharisee. Do you try to get others to obey God's commandments before sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ? If you do, you might be a Pharisee. Do you covet power over other people? If you do, you might be a Pharisee. And if you didn't answer yes to any of these questions, don't quite pack yourself on the back quite yet. Um, how about these? Have you ever bent the truth? Have you ever wished that you had a car or a house that the person across the street had? Have you ever said that you hate somebody? You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that hating someone is just like murdering them. we got to stop kidding ourselves, guys. We're all wretched sinners. We're all in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus came into the world to become man. The Pharisees rejected Jesus and his ministry because they thought that they were already doing everything to the letter of the law as it was written. They didn't think that they needed him because they thought that they were already good enough. They've concluded that while Jesus claimed to be God, he hangs around sinners and therefore cannot be who he says he is. This is their case against Jesus. And it's all the proof that they need that Jesus can't be God. And regardless of his teachings or how he heals people or casts out demons, they think that he should be hanging out with them because of how righteously they live. But let's look in verses 31 and 32, how Jesus responds to them. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call sinners to righteousness, but sinners to repentance. 
Think about what Jesus is saying here in verse 31 for a second, the analogy he's using of the sick needing a doctor. How ridiculous would it be if you walked up to a doctor and said, hey, uh, what's up, doc? Uh, you know, I noticed you've been uh, hanging around with a bunch of sick people lately. What's that all about? <laughs> you probably, you'd probably respond with laughter or you know, some confusion maybe. Um, but a doctor would be what you need, right? That's, that's who you go to when you're sick. Likewise, Jesus is not ashamed to be around sinners. Sin-sick people need forgiveness, and Jesus came as the Savior for our sin, the one whom God's forgiveness is given, and only through him is it given. Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees don't need saving or that they are righteous by God's standards, but by no means. Jesus is saying that he didn't come to save people who don't think that there's anything wrong with them. Jesus came to save people who know something is wrong with them and admit that they're sick and that they need help. He came to call sinners to repentance, which means that we must confess our sin and turn away from it and towards God. And repentance isn't a one-time thing either. It's not like you... You, you say that you believe in Jesus, and on that day you repent for your sins, and then that's it. Repentance is a day-in and day-out thing that we must do because every single day we struggle with sin. Every day we sin. And it's so easy to be lulled into this lie that being a good and moral person is enough. That's how we become self-righteous without even noticing. No matter how hard we try, we will fall short of God's standards. It's only through our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we have the power to turn away from sin. It's because Jesus gave his life on the cross so that we could have life. Jesus took our sins so that we could be righteous. But it's only through him. Through our belief in Jesus, we're brought into a right relationship with God and the Father. Through our belief in Jesus Christ, we are spotless and blameless in our Father's eyes. How wonderful is that? We are so undeserving of that grace, but God, through his son Jesus, has made that possible for us. So how do we apply this? What does it look like? We've been talking about a life on mission, and as I looked at this, I feel like where it really points us to is that his mission becomes our mission. Jesus' mission becomes our mission. Jesus is the one with us in our homes and our workplaces. He's with us amongst our friends and family. And we're called to eat and drink amongst sinners because Jesus models this for us over and over through Scripture. He wants us to build relationships with people so that we can make him known. One of the best ways that you get to know someone my opinion at least, is to share a meal or a cup of coffee. Um, I absolutely love sitting down and having good food. I'm, I'm a foodie. We watch Food Network at home all the time. Um, but it doesn't really resonate if it's just you. Have you ever gone, like you have a lunch break or something and nobody's really available and you end up going to lunch by yourself and just sitting there? I mean, that's like the worst lunch ever, right? It's always better when you have people with you. And this is also one of the reasons why we so strongly encourage people to get involved in small groups here at TCC. 
Some people call these discipleship groups or community groups or life groups. No matter which description of these you use, um, they all have a shared purpose. And you know, they're intentional in size so that you have an opportunity to grow authentic relationships quickly. They are meant to be a place where you can disciple to each other and live out the gospel together. They're an opportunity to build community and do life with Christians outside of Sunday mornings. That's a big one because we've got to be preaching to each other all week, not just on Sunday mornings. But most, if not all of us, all those people in our, in our small groups, most of the time, they're all professed believers in Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to just isolate our interactions strictly to believers because then we can't be a part of his mission. We must grow in our relationships with non-believers too so that God may use us to share the gospel with people and make, uh, that, that don't yet know Jesus. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not, I'm not implying that you're to go and hang out with sinners and buy into their debauchery and, and, and just take yourself away from a life of Christ. But we do need to go out in the world and make Christ known. And the only way that we can do that is with people who don't yet know him. It's taken a lot of effort for me over the course of my life um, to become more extroverted. I'm a pretty introverted guy. Um, you know, if you've known me for a long time, you probably wouldn't know that because once I get to know you, I'm pretty boisterous and um, like to joke around and have a lot of fun. But I'm pretty guarded when I meet people for the first time. And so especially, um, you know, doing something like this, it's, this, is, this is something that, that, that takes a lot of effort um, to be comfortable in social situations where that's not really my, my go-to personality trait. But where it's been amazing to see how God has used certain situations to be able to introduce people to the gospel just by an interaction that I might have had. Um, and it's by nothing that I did. It's just by being willing to have a conversation with somebody at work. Or, I mean, I, it's just really neat that there's been a few opportunities over the last couple of years where, you know, I've been mentoring somebody and then I come to find out that they're a new believer or that they are a believer and they're struggling with something and get a chance to disciple within that situation at work. Corporate America is not one of those places where that typically happens. Um, and that's unfortunate. But Jesus calls us to put ourselves out there, to be able to share his gospel in situations that might not be as comfortable for us as we would like them to be. But we have to guard our hearts against self-righteousness. We don't want to be Pharisees. We're all broken, sinful people, and we need to show the same grace and mercy that Jesus has shown us to others. Because when we follow Jesus, his mission becomes our mission. We go where Jesus goes. We do what Jesus does. We believe what Jesus says, and we find joy in who Jesus is. How exciting is it that we bring glory to God when we participate in Jesus' mission? Isn't that cool? He doesn't need us to fulfill his plan, but he desires us to participate because it brings him joy. And to him goes all the glory. Let me pray.